Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. Core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM Residency Program. I'm Anand Swami Nathan. And I'm Jenny Beckesme. Jenny, what are we going to dive into today? Well, I was going back through our list of podcasts, and I see that we've hit on some interesting concepts about spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, or SBP, but we haven't really dealt about this disease itself, specifically head-on. So I thought we should kind of shore up that gap and talk about it today. That's a good catch. You know, back on podcast 123, we talked a bit about paracentesis based on a study we reviewed, and we've discussed albumin in the past as well, but you're right, we've never taken the topic on in full. This is one of my favorite topics. I actually remember back when I was a rotating medical student, one of the first patients I saw had SBP, and it was a case that I presented for my end of rotation project. So definitely a little bit near and dear to my heart. So yeah, let's, let's jump in. Okay, so what is SBP? This is an acute infection of the acidic fluid in a patient with liver disease without any other source of infection. So how often does this happen? Well, in a patient with liver disease, they have a 10 to 25% risk of this happening at least once to them per year. And 20% of those with ascites that are admitted to the hospital might have this. It can be a really bad disease too. So it's one of those things that we don't want to miss. SBP has a mortality rate of about 50%. So we have to find this if the patient has it. Yeah. And a lot of those cases of SBP where there was mortality were ones that were missed. They weren't found until later. And that goes back to what we talked about before with doing the paracentesis. And we'll get to that again a little bit later in the podcast. The pathophysiology is not completely understood. These patients with cirrhosis have increased portal systemic hypertension that causes mucosal edema of the bowel wall and increases the risk of transmural migration of enteric organisms into the acidic fluid. Impaired phagocytic function of the liver, as well as impaired immunologic activity in the acidic fluid, is what probably leads to these patients getting the infection itself. The classic triad that we all learned about in medical school for the presentation is a patient that has fever, abdominal pain, and increasing ascites. But the presence of all three components of this triad is really going to be uncommon. So be sure to kind of have your guard on if the patient has any of these. The symptoms that you should be looking for are fever chills, abdominal pain, abdominal swelling, fatigue, and malaise. In addition to that, some signs that we may see are abdominal tenderness, although that will be variable. If the patient is tender, they can typically be diffusely tender, so they won't localize to one specific area. And usually that tenderness is mild and without peritoneal signs. They rarely will have things like rebound or guarding, but if they're severely infected, you may see those. Abdominal distension, again, is going to be very common. And some of these patients will come in simply with altered mental status because they've got hepatic encephalopathy. So altered mental status in a patient with ascites should raise your concern for SBP. So now how do we go about making this diagnosis? You're going to need to get a sample of the acidic fluid. That's critical in making this diagnosis. Now, due to the variable presentations, you know, maybe the patient is just altered from their hepatic encephalopathy and considering it has a mortality rate in the 50% range, we really need to consider doing this paracentesis in all patients with acidic fluid who are being admitted. We did this study or we talked about this study back in podcast 123. So pop over that podcast for a full discussion. The short of the long of this is that early paracentesis in admitted patients simply makes sense so that we don't miss this diagnosis. It's a pretty simple procedure, not too much setup, not too much to do. We should be doing this on all patients with ascites. There's a number of great instructional videos on how to do this procedure. There's a good one on MRAP HD that I definitely recommend, and we'll leave a link to that in the show notes. Once you get that fluid sample, what tests should we be running on it? Which are the ones that are going to clinch this for us? The most important is the cell count. We're looking for a white blood count 
over 250 to 500 cells per cubic millimeter. It's unclear if the 250 should be the cutoff or the 500 should be the cutoff. If it's under 250, you're in a safe zone. If it's over 500, you've definitely got SBP. And most people would say 250 to 500 in that gray zone, go ahead and treat the patient. If they've got an absolute neutrophil count over 250 cells per cubic millimeter, that's also diagnostic. The difference or one of the differences we have to be aware of is in patients who do peritoneal dialysis, the cell count's lower. A neutrophil count over 100 cells is going to be diagnostic here. So you have to have a lower threshold in those patients. Now, there are some other tests that we're going to send mostly for our inpatient folks. So pH less than 7.34, that's common in SBP. Acidic fluid gram stain is rarely positive and the culture rarely grows anything out, but you should probably send those off as well. Our inpatient teams usually like things like glucose and protein, LDH, but these aren't going to help you make the diagnosis of SBP. The key is the cell count. If the patient has any fever, any temperature greater than 100 degrees Fahrenheit or abdominal pain and tenderness, empiric antibiotics should be given even if the neutrophil count is less than 250 cells. That's really an important point because sometimes that acidic fluid is going to be in that gray zone and we don't want to miss these patients. So you're better off covering them with antibiotics, admitting them to the hospital and have them closely watched if they've got a couple of the classic signs and symptoms. Uh, so that's interesting. So if the patient has the symptoms of it and the ascites, do the tap, obviously, but regardless, you're going to treat it. You're going to call it SBP and treat it until they get better. Exactly. And I think, again... Kind of like meningitis. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's it's kind of that gray zone. This is such a dangerous diagnosis. You don't want to miss it. So if they have none of the signs except for maybe some increased acidic fluid, I would tap them and wait about covering them unless you get a positive cell count. But if they've got fever, abdominal pain, and abdominal distension because of their ascites, I'd probably tap them and cover them. So I wouldn't wait for that cell count to make the diagnosis. Okay. All right. So now how do we cover them? Most common bacterial causes are E. coli, strep pneumo, and then of course the enterococci. So we're going to treat usually with the majority of cases with a third generation cephalosporin. So that means ceftriaxone 25 mg per kg up to one gram daily or cefataxime 25 mg per kg up to one gram Q8 hours. Alternative antibiotic choices that you can use if your patient can't take a cephalosporin would be ciprofloxacin, levofloxacin, piptazobactam, ertapenem, and imipenem silstatin. And we'll put a link to that on the show notes. All right. Now, in addition to antibiotics, albumin infusion is another piece of the treatment puzzle that we need to consider. There's a great post by Rick Pescatore on Rebel EM diving deep into this. The American Association of the Study of Liver Disease, the AASLD, recommends that there are certain subgroups with SBP who need high-dose albumin infusion. Those are patients who have serum creatinine over one milligram per deciliter, anyone with a BUN over 30 milligrams per deciliter, or a total bili over four milligrams per deciliter. The impact of that albumin infusion is pretty dramatic. A 25% reduction in renal failure, a 20% reduction in mortality. The dose and it's a big one, 1.5 grams per kilo within six hours and another gram per kilo on day three of treatment. But this is not something that we should defer to our inpatient team. We should be starting this if we see those three signs. Again, that's serum creatinine over one, BUN over 30, and a total billy over four. And patients with a single episode of SBP should also be considered for antibiotic prophylaxis, but that's usually something that we can defer to the inpatient team. All right, Jenny, how about some take-home points? So SPP is a difficult diagnosis to make because the presentations are variable. Make sure to consider doing the diagnostic paracentesis in all patients presenting to the ED with ascites from cirrhosis. Just get that, get that done. Second, an ascites PMN count 
of greater than 250 is diagnostic of SPP, but treatment should be considered in any patient with ascites and abdominal pain or fever. And then last, treatment of SBP is with a third-generation cephalosporin, such as ceftriaxone or cefetaxime, with the addition of albumin infusion in any patient meeting AASLD criteria. So that's a creatinine greater than 1, BUN greater than 30, or total bilirubin greater than 4. Well, that's all for the CoreM podcast this week. Come on over and check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore EM. Thanks, and see you all next week.